Luke chapter 17. So let's turn to Luke 17. The passage that uh, Jeff kindly read to us is the passage that I've chosen to, uh, to uh, speak on. So let's read now at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well, or as the ESB margin says, your faith has saved you. It was both. He was made well and he was saved. Now, you might wonder why I've chosen that passage. Well, my morning readings last year were on Luke. I didn't realise that uh, our elders were going to take a series on Luke. And as I read, it is my custom to, to actually note certain uh, things that come out from the text to meet me. I don't know if you do that. When I'm reading, I, something suddenly pops out or something comes out more electrifying, more definite, more absolute. And I was reading through Luke, and, uh, and I like Luke because it's a, it's a very user-friendly book. It's a book that every woman should read and reread because it speaks more about women than any other of the Gospels put together. There's more about women in Luke. So it's really a woman's gospel. So if you haven't read it, read it. Read it. Now, I was reading along and it was so enjoyable. And as I read, I read, I read, I read and read. Suddenly, this question of Jesus, where are the nine, popped out and hit me full square. Because of my stroke, I had um, joined the majority of silent worshippers. And I said, guess, Lord, I, you've got something to say to me. He said, I have. You know, in my conversational way with God, I'm asking you where you are. I haven't heard your voice for a while. 
So in my inimitable way over almost 60 years of teaching, I used to take a note and say, you should teach this passage. And so I have quite a, a list of people, of passages that I have to teach because God has spoken to me quite alarmingly and I say, well, you're speaking to me because I've got to speak to others. So here it is. So now, where are we in, uh, in where are we in uh, Luke's gospel? You say we're in chapter 17, but ah, there's more to it than that. You must see now. Right, we, we're, we're all set. We're in a section that's called by theologians Luke's long insertion. There are nine chapters, almost ten chapters, that are almost distinctively Luke's. The first section up to chapter nine runs parallel with Matthew and Mark except for Luke's extended introduction. And then the last section links in against with Matthew and Mark and also with John. So Matthew has three chapters on the journey to Jerusalem. Mark has only one. Luke has ten. Now where did the journey to Jerusalem start is quite a, an argumented situation and I would suggest to you that um, it uh, it starts on the Mount of Transfiguration and if you say how does it start there because Moses and Elijah were talking to him about his exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem so of course it was it was started in terms of the fact that it was going to be in the Mount of Transfiguration, um, where did it finish? Well, I take it that it finished on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended. Where from? Jerusalem. So from Luke 9 right through to Luke 24, we are journeying to Jerusalem. And you say, but in chapter 18, we get to Jerusalem. But you'll notice that they left Jerusalem too, and Jesus traveled with them, but they had to return to Jerusalem, and Jesus returned to Jerusalem himself. And where he left was from Jerusalem. But Luke has a very interesting thing. You notice the first verse of our passage, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So he has a kind of a diary of travel. You know, some people keep diaries of their holidays and their travels, and they tell you where well, I was there, and I was there, and I was there, and I was there. Luke, he, he, is, he is a diary of travel in Luke's gospel and he has another one in the book of the Acts. 
Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And he keeps on saying that Paul went to Jerusalem, he went to Jerusalem, he went to Jerusalem, he went to Jerusalem. In fact, five times Paul went to Jerusalem. Now, what was the first phase? The first phase is from 951 to 1321, as I'd see in the, in the overhead. And that's entitled by uh, Gromachy as the mission program. The second phase is the message preached in 1322 to 1710, where we are now. And it's not for naught that most gospel preachers find a fund of gospel messages in that second phase. You can you can't you can't preach the gospel if you haven't if you haven't preached on the ninety and nine and the one that went astray. You haven't preached the gospel if you haven't preached on the prodigal. You expect gospelers to preach the gospel and that's where they preach it. And they preach it, and they preach it. Now the third phase is actually the manner predicted. So you have the gospel mission, and then you have the gospel message, and now you have the gospel as it actually is affected. What's its results? What was its outcomes? What was the end of the matter? And I expected Jeff to, to say, because he's very keen on eschatology, I expect him to read something in the eschatological passage in, uh, in Luke chapter 17. You might get, pick it up on chapter 21, or whoever does chapter 21. Now, let's just look then at uh, what the chapter is about. In the first four verses, it's about the giving of others. It parallels Matthew 18, and it is forgiveness, but only in terms of repentance. But if a person says to you seven times in a day, I repent, Jesus said, you must forgive him. And if you say, oh, Oh, Lord, that requires a very great deal of faith. It does. And so faith is now to be exercised. And so Jesus talks about faith. And he says, now don't you get any high and mighty idea that you are the best person because you forgive and you have your faith exercise, what you need to say is we are unprofitable servants. We've only done what we should. Now, what's that section that we're dealing with of the healing of the ten lepers? We mustn't minimise that Jesus healed all ten. And we mustn't minimise that the law of witness is two or three as the minimum. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. That's the minimum of witness. On the strength of one, no one could be condemned. It had to be two or three witnesses. But now we've got ten witnesses. And what does ten symbolize? 
the fullness of the witness, the finality of the witness, the absolute truth of the witness. Ten men coming to the priests, one after another, and they are being pronounced by the priests clean, healed. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There can be no doubt that Jesus healed them. And there can be no doubt in the priest's mind that only the Messiah could do this. So this section is furthering the witness to Jesus as the Messiah. No question about it. Now, the final section is the focus in terms of the coming kingdom. Very important passage because it builds on Matthew 13 and Matthew, Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25. There are problems that you and I meet when we read Mark 13 that the reader understands. How am I to understand? I don't even know what he's talking about. And I come to Matthew 24 and 25, and it talks about the abomination of desolation, and whatever, Matthew, are you making? Now I come to Luke, and he doesn't have the abomination of desolation, neither as Mark and Matthew do. He talks about the armies of the Romans surrounding the city. And hi-ho! I now realize what he means by the abomination of desolation. The Romans' idolatrous standards will be planted in the very heart of the temple. That's an abomination to God. Now, I'll probably put in some of you, in your mind, some more questions because I thought that re that, that, re that absolutely... Goes to the end time, and it does. So the abomination that of desolation is historical in terms of uh, Israel's previous history. The, the abomination of desolation talks about their present history. The abomination of desolation talk, talks about their future history. So I hope I haven't spoiled your thinking about some of these things, but I hope you will rethink them. Now, let's go to our passage. The healing of the ten lepers. This highlights for us Jesus' question, where are the nine? He didn't say where's the one because he's there right before him. Well, let's talk about the ten first. Their anguish cry. They can't come close to Jesus because the Jewish law said if you're windward, you can only come as far as 15 paces, if my, my memory is serving me right, I read it somewhere, 
in my reading of Jewish writings. Uh, if you're leeward, you can only come 20 or 30 paces. So they stood at a distance and they had to cry with a loud shout. So what do they cry? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It was a full-throated cry by ten lepers. Now what did Jesus do? He encompassed them all. He never said, well, Samaritan, you're very special because you're going to return to me. Jesus knew they weren't going to return. Uh, but he healed them all. And he's all encompassing compassion. He healed each one and all of them. And then he gave them a plain command, backed, of course, by Leviticus chapter 13 and chapters 14, that when, in terms of Exodus 15, I am the Lord that healeth you, you are to go to the priest, and the priest is, is to examine you to see whether or not you have been healed. And therefore, you have the right to enter Jewish society because lepers were isolated and quarantined from their homes, from the synagogue, from the temple, and the priests only could say, okay, you're healed, you can now enter the Israeli community. Now, he told all ten of them to go to show themselves to the priest. Jesus was backing Old Testament scripture and he was also backing the New Testament foreground that he has done this and you are to report to the priest that you have been healed by me. That's the inference. Because the priest would say, how come all ten of you have been healed? They would have to state that Jesus had done it, wouldn't they? I mean, if all ten people said to me on this day that we've been healed miraculously, I would have to see, I would have to ask them the question, who did it? Who did it? Now, by the way, we don't believe in, in divine healing, do we? Of course we do. That God answers prayer in his will and God answers prayer in his will not to heal. And God answers prayer and says, just wait a while. I built into your system that you would be enabled to be healed. I remember 
visiting to a doctor that some of you older people will remember, Dr. Pettit, who lived to 104 and, th and some months. He said to me when I visited him in his, uh, in his rooms on one occasion, because we, had, we, de we were dealing quite a serious spiritual problem, oh, he said, Jack, you look as though you've got a cold. I said, well, yes, I have. He said, if I can give you some medication for it, he says, he said, within a fortnight, it will be healed. But if I say, you've got the flu, and said, just drink like a fish, and in 14 days, you will be healed. He believed that very much, very much recuperation was actually in the, in the body. Here I am. When I had my stroke, I couldn't say a word. You would have said, that's a, just about impossible for, for Jack Boys not to have a word. But I couldn't speak. But here, sure, I've been having help. 20 sessions of speech therapy in the Waikato Hospital. And sure, I've had a help to get my balance back in going to a gymnasium. And they're putting me through my paces at 82, but it was, it's been very good. But the natural body has recuperated power. Who, who put it there? Who put them there? God, our Father, who is our Creator. And so sometimes we pray that God should actually heal us right now. When sometimes it's a process. We're all works in process, haven't we? Of course we are. Of course we are. So let's, let's do some holistic thinking about this subject. Now, his intention was that their witness would be to him as their only God and their true Messiah. If Jesus did it, then who is he? Exodus chapter 15, 26 said, I am the Lord that healeth you. Well, I suspect that they were recognizing that only God could do this. And the second thing is that uh, the Isaiahic scriptures say only too well that the Messiah is going to do miracles. And there he is. So I suspect that they should be confessing that he is their very God and their true Messiah. Well, what's the outshot? Only one returns with grateful thanks and praise to God. Hmm. He is a Samaritan, a stranger outside of the promises to Israel and really outside the governance. Why did he return to Jesus? Well, I've given you three reasons. He probably felt excluded from the Jewish priesthood or at least from their inclusive sympathy as being doubly unclean to them. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day taught that all Samaritans were unclean. And how they, how they adduced it was that they said that every Samaritan woman was unclean. And so every child born to a Samaritan woman was 
too unclean. So this means that all Samaritans are unclean. They didn't have a figure scripture for it, but they, they worked on this assumption. So you notice in John 4 when Jesus is speaking to a woman, and the disciples were absolutely aghast because he's not only speaking to a woman, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. By the way, our turn has certainly come as New Zealanders. We have, well, we have almost, I think the last count, I don't know what the present count is, Gary, but we have 14 nationalities in this church, haven't we? 14 nationalities. And you know, probably in 20 years' time, we New Zealand Europeans may be a minority. Oh my, that is going to put us through our paces. I only wish that I could be alive, but God alone knows. I would like to see how we react if we are a minority actually dealing with so many nationalities. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be wonderful as a Christian. Absolutely wonderful because we're all one in Christ Jesus. We all are one, aren't we? I'm just talking to you. I'm just, no, don't, don't remember your name. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And how we are actually one is that we are all believers in Christ. We're all linked to Christ. We are all joined to Christ. We all have Christ. Now, Ken recently, last Sunday, said that he hasn't talked to everybody in this church yet. And, and I... I noted that down in my memory, Kim, because I haven't too. Mind you, I could pass, uh, pass it by saying that, you know, I'm, I can't stand very far. But in my younger days, Ken, I could tell you the names of every person in about umpteen dozen churches. Because you never got into... There were a church that I was speaking in and I stood at the door to make sure that I talked to you. And if you didn't want to stay, I walked to the door before the people stood up. So I was there to greet you as you passed out and talk to you on the way out. There's many a person that thanks... God, that I was there to kind of leg rope them because they weren't too sure that they actually fitted in this church or they weren't too sure that this was their church. But I determined that if you weren't going to talk to anybody, I was going to talk to you. By the way, a word in season, how good it is. You just might meet somebody and just pass on a, a, a casual remark. 
If you're in my business, I'm in the business of sowing seed. And when I talk to you, I talk to you about something Christian. I usually make sure that you get a, a text in my conversation before the first three minutes. Because I want you to actually not only talk to me, but I want you to hear what God is saying to you. Now, so he was a Samaritan. He returns to Christ because he's been cured and he's been cleansed and he's so overwhelmed and so excited and so absolutely with it that he must come and say, Thanks. And he must come and glorify God. You say, well, that was to be expected, wasn't it? I want to tell you that he was a Samaritan. He didn't have any claims on the promises of Israel. He had no claims on the covenants. But Jesus was even-handed. If none of you are leopards, uh, uh, lepers, and the tenth is a leper, I'm going to heal you all. Now, what did Jesus do with them? Well, what does he do? He, he acknowledges him, and he acknowledges that his social renewal has now taken place and his personal state he has been made well but I do like the uh, the actual margin in the ESV your faith has saved you he came back and said it's you that's done it you have saved me you have not only made me well but I now know that you are our Tabara you are now our saviour. The Samaritans looked for a redeemer. They called their Tabara, their restorer. And now he had faith with him. What wonders, what I wonder was that God's son now says, I'm your God and I'm your priest. If you can't go to the Jewish priest, I'll be your priest. I'll, I'll, actually, I'll, only, I'll actually pronounce you clean. I think that's wonderful. Mind you, you've got a priest if you're a Christian. And so have I. Oh, by the way, he's an everlasting priest. We'll always need a priest. Do you think we would? Do you think we should? What do you reckon? A priest for all time? Oh, that's a wonderful thought. That is wonderful. An everlasting priest, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Helsedic. A priest forever. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, let's look at the nine again. 
Where are the nine? Their witness to the priest was obligatory. obligatory. They were uh, a leprous group. They would have been isolated from their home, the synagogue and the temple. They were now cleansed and free to return to all three of these, no longer isolated but integrated into the nation as a whole. They were aware of their acute need that Jesus the Messiah and their true Lord has healed them. Oh, they know that. But now the foreground. If they side with Jesus, what's going to happen? Well, we know from John's Gospel that this, is, this was what would happen. They would be ostracized from their family. They would, they would not be allowed to enter the synagogues and they would have no welcome in the temple. Because the Jews had agreed already that if any man confessed that Jesus was Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And do you remember that John, that Jesus had brothers and sisters? They said that Jesus was deranged when we come to Mark 13. Uh, Mark chapter 3, rather. Their problem was that in John chapter 7, we, we're told that his, that his brethren did not believe in him. His brothers didn't believe in him. And we're told that if you, if you were to, to actually confess Jesus as the Christ, you had no place in the synagogue. And later, in that momentous situation that Paul had in Jerusalem, he was in, the, he was in the temple and he was excluded by the temple. And if you read Acts 21, chapter uh, verse 30, they shut the temple doors. Why did they shut the temple doors? To shut the Christians out. Well, that would mean that they would go back to what they were when they were lepers. But now, cleansed and made well. So, what happened? They felt the pressure, the pressure to conform, to conform to their family, their friends, and their nation. And if that pressure succeeded, it would nullify their testimony to Jesus. Now, I come from an unbelieving family. My father used to sing in the Church of England choir. But he had not one ounce of faith in him. Partly because he went to the First World War and was gassed and was... Uh, a big chunk taken out of his leg and he came back a pale reflection of the man that he was before he went to the war. When I became a Christian, he didn't want to know. 
my brothers didn't want to know. One of my brother's children came to faith and the, my brother warned him that if this, my brother Jack gets hold of you, you will be a Christian. So the last time I visited him, I was visiting him. He's about two years older than me. And he didn't want to talk about the Christian faith at all. And I was quite determined that I, I would talk about the Christian faith. So eventually I got a word in, a word in edgeways for him. And I can see him now. He, he shot straight up. Are you preaching to me, Jack? I said, I'm not. I'm pointing to your scripture because you are saying what is contrary to it. And I can't, I can't let you away with that. And he said, well, I shall think about it. He said, I shall think about it. So, all right. Now, very quickly, because we're almost out of time. The nine in our churches... I haven't ever done a summary of our church in terms of the participation in our worship and thanks. But across assemblies of uh, Christian brethren churches, the estimate is that only 10% take part in worship. That's one in every 10 take part in the worship. The size of our assemblies allow some people to remain silent. And I've said to elders in bigger churches that if I was a young fellow in your church, I would have been consigned to silence. Thankfully, I was converted in a very small assembly where I had to take part. And if I didn't take part, there were two or three godly sisters that would rouse about me and say, Jack, we haven't heard your voice. And on one occasion, one sister said, this is my excuse for not taking part. Let your woman keep silence in the church. What's your excuse? So I was, I was rounded up quick and smart. When we got to our Bible readings, it was expected that you would ask questions, even if you didn't know anything about the passage. And if you didn't ask questions and you sat like a zombie, you were rounded on by the elders, who actually said, why aren't you taking part? Smaller churches, as you will, if you go to a small assembly, the actual participation rate is almost 60 to 70 percent. What does that say? Well, I think the larger churches make two things easy for us. One, it's easy to be remain silent because there's someone going to take part. This means that we become lazy. And you and I should have say, am I, a, and that's what when this text came to me, I said, am I becoming a lazy Christian? 
I can say something. My good friend out the back used to say to me, come on, Jack, we need to hear a word from you. And he was right. Let me say to you that Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm and hath and hath and hath and hath and hath. It was the expectation that all the men would take part. Now, they can't all take part in one service, but they're all committed to take part. And the, and the, the idea is, as one of my elders of the past taught me, uh, prepared unpreparedness. You are prepared to take part, but because it wasn't decent in an order, you can defer that because they said, if it's a word from God, it will stand keeping. If it's not a word from God, it was like the manner. It would, it would breed worms and be a stench. Now, I do excuse the old, older believers, by the way. I've got there that the older believers have a loss of nerve and strength and speech. I do think that older believers can be excused. Not that I'm excusing myself, but uh, they do have a loss of strength and a loss of nerve and quite often a loss of speech. Now, let me say to you, the height of worship actually reveals the length of our witness. If you've got nothing to say to God, what have you got to say to others? And I believe that the early brethren were right. If a person in the Lord's Supper had a very rich, real contribution to the worship, they put him on to preach the gospel at the night service. Sometimes it backfired because the person didn't have the gift. But if a person is full of Christ, he's the right person to preach the gospel. Now then, I've got a question and I must finish. Am I a part of the silent majority or of a willing minority who knowing that to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now let us examine ourselves and say to ourselves, am I a silent majority or am I a witnessing, worshipping minority? The Lord blesses each one. Thank you.